Welcome to Laughter for All. It's the podcast with comedian Nazareth. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Laughter for All podcast. I am comedian Nazareth, and thank you so much for joining us. Um, I have a great guest today. You know, I always tell you we have a good guest. No, I have a great guest. I have a a best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author. Uh, you know, his movie was amazing. We went to the theaters, The Case for Christ. We went to theaters and watched it, me and my wife. It was amazing. And then now it is available on Pure Flex. Yeah. His books are just amazing, 50-some books. The last one is The Case for Miracles is amazing. And uh, I'm going to uh, just officially introduce him to you. Uh, Mr. Lee Strobel, he was an atheist turned Christian, is a former award-winning legal editor of the Chicago Tribune and best-selling author of more than 20 books. His classic, The Case for Christ, is a perennial favorite which details his conversion to Christianity. His recent release, The Case for Grace, won the 2016 Nonfiction Book of the Year from the APCA. For the last 25 years, his life's work has been to share the evidence that supports the truth and claims of Christianity and to equip believers to share their faith with the people they know and love. All right, Mr. Lee Strobel, thank you for taking the time. Tell us, you're in Dallas, right? I'm in Houston, actually. Oh, you're in Houston. So how was the storm? It was awful. It was really bad. You know, I'm from Chicago, so I'm used to cold weather, but it got down to 16 degrees. Uh, we had ice on the roads. We couldn't go anywhere. The power went out. It was 45 degrees in my house. Uh, we lost water. Uh, mm. it, it was really a, a bad situation all around the state. And um, unfortunately, we had about 21 people who died as a result, uh, including an 11-year-old boy not far from our house who uh, uh, froze to death in his own bed. Oh. Yeah, just horrible, horrible. So it was a very difficult time. And, um, you know, we as a church did as much as we could and feeding people and, um, you know, people's pipes um, exploded. I had water, um, you know, coming into my house. So it was very hard. But you know what? It was 78 degrees today. So <laughs> oh, it went back to normal. So that's it's back good. to normal. Yeah, everything's great now. I mean, so now it's a distant memory. <laughs> you know, it's sad to, you know, it's sad not to have toilet paper. But what's worse is to have toilet paper, but not to have running water. Now, you were born in Chicago, right? Yeah, that's I've right. been to Chicago. I love Chicago. We did a whole family vacation. Now, uh, what was your dad like? Um, he was a, an attorney. Uh, he had his own company. He was an independent insurance adjuster. Um, he was quite successful, you know, member of the country club and mm. uh, golfer. And um, my mom was a golfer as well. In fact, she never swung a golf club until she was 30 and ended up being a championship amateur golfer, won seven tournaments. Um, wow. so, in fact, the first article I ever sold to a magazine. I was 14 years old and I sold an article uh, to Golf Canada magazine called Saga of a Golf Orphan, which was <laughs> what it was like when both of your parents were um, constantly on the golf course. So. <laughs> you were raised in like hole number nine, right? That's right. <laughs> that's, right. Oh, that's awesome. That's a, so do you know what golf stands for? No. Golf is a Scottish game and it's called gentlemen only ladies forbidden, which means that's why women were not allowed to play the game. Is this, is seriously? True. I seriously. did not know that. Yes. That's why, you know, when, when they played the game, they were not allowed women. Well, the queen was the first one who wanted to play. Oh. But, and they allowed her, but she didn't want to carry her stuff. So she had a military cadet, which is a British, what they call him. So the caddy was her guy. That's where the term came in. I did not know that. That is really interesting. And also, we'll, we'll, in the Scottish military back then, they didn't have automatic uh, weaponry. So yeah. what they did is they lined up their soldiers in fours. So the first four will shoot. Then the ones behind them say four. So they duck. Ah. the term form came up See, oh my god this is fascinating i i had no idea not of course coming from you i'm not sure should i is this no a no, no. I, english is a second language so i have to learn what everything means <laughs> like when you guys use sometimes you use the s word which is a bad word we don't yeah. use in christianity and people wonder i i ask people what does it mean they have no clue they refer <laughs> to it to men no well what happened in the old days 
well, they didn't have plumbing. So what yeah. they do is they take the sewer in ships and throw it in the middle of the ocean. But, you know, manure catches fire. So they always have to ship high in transition. S-H-I-T, ship uh -huh. high in transition. And when people, the sailors saw the, the S-H-I-T, they go, oh, no, this is manure. It smells bad. That's where the term <laughs> came from. But, hey, I'm here for you. Not, I want to learn from you. I, I'm taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> now, what made you want to go? Is it because, you know, you were the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. So the, what made you want to go into the legal, uh, you know, education? You're a Yale graduate. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Uh, was it your dad? Was it because he was an attorney? What made uh, you want to do that? I don't think so. I, I think it was uh, just the way I think and lent itself to that. I, my undergraduate degree is from journalism at the University of Missouri, which, of course, is the great journalism school. The first <laughs> journalism school in the country. Here's a fact. 1913, Walt Williams founded the first journalism school at the University of Missouri. So uh, it's the oldest and the best. So I went there and then... Um, then I went directly to the Chicago Tribune uh, as a reporter, and um, I got a Ford Foundation fellowship to go to Yale Law School to get my Master of Studies in Law degree. So I kind of fell into going to law school. It wasn't my plan, but they offered me a full salary and, and, and full tuition and everything to go. And I thought, well, why not? This, make, this is a good deal. So um, I, I went, and uh, then I came back and was made legal editor. So I enjoy the law. I enjoy, I later taught First Amendment law at Roosevelt University. So I've done some teaching on law, but um, um, I didn't want to make a career out of it. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not a lawyer. I have a master's degree, so I can't practice law anyway, which is great because if a person comes <laughs> up to me at a party and says, can you write my will? I can say, oh, I'm sorry. I, I can't do that. You know, <laughs> and people treat you nicer when you're not an attorney. Yeah. It's always, no, uh, as a journalist, you know, I mean, that's, how can we today, I mean, you, you watch people on CNN or Fox or other, yeah. and you know, everyone is trying to switch the truth to make it fit there. Where yeah. can you find truth in the news right now as a journalist? If you want to know if this really happened, where do you go? That is a hugely important question. Um, and let me give you a little background. So I think this is, this is really, really important. Mm. Um, when I was a journalist at Chicago Tribune, one of my big um, exposés that I did was on the Ford Motor Company's production of the, the Ford Pinto car, mm. which had a tendency to blow up when hit behind in low or medium speed accidents. There were about 60 people killed in those accidents who should not have died, but did because the car was not well designed. So, they, so Ford was charged with um, reckless homicide. And I got a hold of a, a bunch of secret memos from Ford Motor Company that showed that they knew in advance that this car could oh. blow up when hit from behind in low or moderate speed crashes. But they didn't want to change it because it would mean that you couldn't put golf clubs in the trunk. So, um, so I did a series of articles about this that ended up on the front page of every newspaper in America. But before, here's the point, before they printed that article, you better believe that my editor cross-examined me. They brought in attorneys. And how do you know this is true? Let me see the documents. And they made me prove to them that what I was going to publish in the Chicago Tribune was accurate. Now, here's the problem. Today, there's a proliferation of, quote unquote, news outlets, some of which have no um, um, kind of safeguards like I had when I was a reporter where editors would question everything and make sure it was true before it went into the newspaper. You've got blogs, you've got uh, left-wing and right-wing um, news sites that, that mm -hmm. may have no journalistic standards. And so stuff gets propagated and published that may not meet that standard of being true. So here's the problem. Now it's up to you to be the editor who does the screening. So, mm -hmm. And, and you're not trained to do it. You didn't go to right. journalism school. You're not. Mm -hmm. so, so now all these readers in America, they read something, they go, oh, my goodness, that's really powerful. But how do I know it's true? Um, they, need to, they need to be asking themselves questions like, are the sources named? And if they're named, are they trustworthy? Or are they secret sources? And if they're secret, why are they secret? Um, did it come from a reputable publication? And, and, and so forth. So this is a real problem in our democracy, uh, this proliferation of, quote unquote, false news. 
Um, how do we get around it? One way is to rely on coverage from news organizations that have a track record of being accurate and honest, that maintain those journalistic standards, that do have editors that question the reporters and make sure that what's printed is true. So for instance, a good example is the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. Um, people think of the Wall Street Journal as just being a, a, a business newspaper, but it's not. It, it covers all kinds of news. They have good standards. And yes, their editorial page um, is conservative, but their news pages are independent. And it's a pretty trustworthy uh, source of information. But um, this is a problem in our democracy. I worry about our democracy when we have, uh, you know, there was just an article that was published here in Texas concerning the blackouts that we had and the energy outages that we had that made certain allegations. And now I, which were very sensational. Now I just read an article that debunks all that and says, no, that's not true. And here's why. So we, we've really got to be careful these days. Um, and it's, it's a problem that needs to be addressed. Now, what do you, what do you other than the war, war, you know, Wall Street Journal, what do yeah. you read? What do you, I try to, you go? I try to go to different um, sources from different um, um, wings of, the, of um, politics. So in other words, I'll watch CNN and I'll watch Fox News. Um, I go to both of them to try to get a balance between the two. <laughs> to get to the middle. Yeah, right. The truth is probably in the middle somewhere. <laughs> you know? that's, that's awesome. Now, uh, people know you, you were an atheist yes. and you fell in love with Leslie, your wife, and you yes. got married. And uh, after a while, she became, I saw the movie, she became a believer yeah. in Christ and you were angry at that. Yes. Tell us what happened from that point. Yeah, she... Um, became a, a, I remember the moment. In fact, the movie is pretty close to what actually took place when she told me the news that she had become a Christian. I mean, the first word that went through my mind was divorce. I was going to walk out. And uh, in fact, I'll tell you something embarrassing. I, I usually don't tell this part, but no, I would love it. Laughter <laughs> for all. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, she had just planted a whole flower garden in our backyard. And then she comes and she tells me she'd become a Christian. And I was so mad. I was so upset. I stormed out of the house and, and I had to mow the lawn. So I was mowing the lawn and I saw her brand new flower garden. Oh, I just, no. I mowed down the entire That's divorce garden. material. That's divorce material. <laughs> it is. They're very close. That almost ended it right there. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you were mad, but you, as a journalist, you decided you're going to go back and yeah. check it out. Yeah, I mean, um, exactly. Um, Here's the thing about Christianity. It makes claims that can be investigated. This isn't true of all religions. Some of them make claims with, you know, kind of with no intent that anybody ever tried to check them out. Um, Christianity, you know, Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. In other words, if this isn't true, then you are justified to walk away from the faith. So um, Christianity is claims that it's not based on wishful thinking, make believe or, or legend or mythology. It's based on historical truth. Well, what I did for a living at the Tribune was check things out. So I thought, honestly, it's embarrassing too, but I thought I could disprove Christianity on a weekend. I thought, I thought, give me a couple of days. It can't be that hard. <laughs> dead people don't come back to life. I've seen plenty of dead bodies. None of them ever come back to life. And uh, so I thought I could disprove it. And I was shocked, actually, that the more I probed, the stronger the evidence was. And, um, you know, especially I focused a lot on the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, I was really, I mean, sources inside and outside the New Testament, um, you know, ultimately over two years persuaded me that Jesus not only claimed to be the son of God, but he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. Now, uh, how has the Tribune allowed you to take that time to, <laughs> to do that? Yeah, I did it on weekends. I did it on, on uh, vacation days. I, um, I, I, and sometimes I, I did things that weren't very ethical. Like I would, I, I would call somebody up, a scholar, and I, of course, I didn't know who I was. And I'd say, hi, my name is Lee Strobel. I'm a reporter at the Chicago Tribune. 
could I ask you a few questions? And they probably thought I was writing an article for the Chicago Tribune, (laughs) but I was just looking for, I remember calling one professor at a university who was an expert on um, Ignatius, who was one of the early church fathers. And uh, he actually wrote six letters on its way to being executed and um, have some historical claims made in those documents. So I wanted to find out whether they were true. And uh, I remember calling him up and saying, hey, I'm Lee Strobel from the Chicago Tribune. I have a few questions. And I interviewed him for a while. And then he said, well, when is this article coming out? <laughs> and I said, um, hey, I'll see you later. Click. You know? <laughs> no, uh, did they ever do an article after you came up with that? No, no, no. Now, now no. what was your marriage like during that two years? Were yeah, you it was rocky. It was rocky. It was right. You know, I met my wife when we were 14 years old and um, uh, she went home and told her mom, I met the boy I'm going to marry. And so we got married so young that we couldn't drink champagne at our wedding. Uh, So we had had champagne glasses filled with milk at at our wedding. Yeah, I was she was 19. I was 20 and um, you had to be 21 to drink that time in Illinois. So um, I've known her you know, for many, many years. And we always had a great relationship. And now we've been married 48 years. But um, that that two year period during which I was investigating Christianity was that was touch and go. I mean, there were times when I thought this is not going to work. In fact, we wrote a book about it called uh, Surviving a Spiritual Mismatch in Marriage uh, mm. to try to help people who are married to you know, Christians. Who yeah. Are married, what do you believe. say to the, like in a nutshell, I know people can go get the book, but yeah. in a nutshell, what do you say to a woman who she's a believer? Most, most of the time it is the wife with the believer. Yes. She's been praying for her husband. She has sees no signs. How do you encourage uh, a woman like that? Yeah. What Leslie found are three relationships are really important to build. The first relationship is your relationship with God. So you need to, even though your husband may, um, you know, discourage you from going to church or from reading your Bible as best you can to continue to nurture relationship with God, because he's the one who's going to change you in a way that ultimately I believe would be attractive to your husband. Second, and I mean that by by just your authenticity and your integrity and and mm-hmm. and, and your morality, I think, is uh, number two, build a relationship uh, with um, um, someone who is a fellow Christian who is a little more mature than you are, a person of the same gender, who can mentor you, who can encourage you, who can pray with you. Uh, What my wife did, there was a woman downstairs in the movie. um, I can't remember what name they gave her in the movie. In real life, what was that? Linda. Linda, In real life, it's Linda. Yeah. Yeah. In real life, Linda. Yeah. Yeah. And so Linda, while I was at work, Leslie and Linda would get together and they drink tea and talk and Linda would encourage Leslie and and help her learn from the Bible because I discourage her from going to church. And so that relationship is really, really important to have a mature Christian in your life who can guide you and mentor you. And then the third relationship to build is the relationship with your spouse. I mean, you got married for a reason. don't let this centrifugal force of this mismatch blow your marriage apart. Reach out to your spouse and, you know, um, where you can accommodate um, things. For instance, uh, she wanted to go to church on Sundays, but on a lot of Sundays, uh, I want to sleep off a hangover from Saturday night. And I didn't want to watch the kids while she went to church. and, And so she didn't go many times when she wanted to go. Um, was that something she wanted to do? No, but she did it because she wanted to build her relationship with me. And so she identified what are those things that we love to do together before mm. this schism started? You know, we love to go on bike rides together. We love to go on long, long walks together. We love to go up to Wisconsin and, um, uh, uh hang Why? out. With, yeah. Why? <laughs> I'm sorry. I have a lot of fans in Wisconsin. I apologize, guys. Uh, so she she would build on those commonalities to, to make sure our marriage stayed together. So those three relationships with God, a mentor, and your spouse, I think, in a nutshell, are the three things to work on. Now, you wrote the book, The Case for Christ. Was that your first book? No, I'd actually written, I actually wrote a book on the Ford Pinto case called Reckless Homicide uh, before I was a Christian. 
And then I'd written two other Christian books before I wrote Case for Christ. And how did that, when that win became a New York Times bestseller, how did you feel? Well, Honestly, was, I don't want was, the Christian response. Yeah. Well, here's what was funny. The book was not sell. It came out in, as I recall, September of 2018. Or no, I'm sorry. Uh, um, 1998, 2000 uh, of 1998 it came out in September. The book was not selling. It was, it was not selling. So oh. I got the phone number of a guy by the name of Hank Hanegraaff. Oh, I know Hank. Yeah. He went, Hank, he's orthodox now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He was the Bible answer man. He had a big yes. national radio show based mm -hmm. in California. So yeah. I got a hold of his number and I called him. He didn't know me. I called him up. I said, hey, I've written this book and um, I'm going to be in California coming up. And he said, you are? You're going to be here? I said, yeah. He said, well, why don't you come on by? We'll do a show. Well, I wasn't planning to be in California, but I got a plane ticket and I flew to California. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, and he did like several shows based on the book and that's what launched the book. And pretty soon it, it, um, it became a bestseller and it hit number one in the Christian bestseller list. And um, I, I mean, it was for me who, you know, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer and the idea of having um, a book published was just, it was a fulfillment of a dream mm -hmm. and having a bestseller was just something I wouldn't even dare to dream about. Uh, I remember when I wrote my first book, which was the, the Ford Pinto book, I was still at the Chicago Tribune and um, the guy whose desk was next to mine on one side of me in the desk next to me was David Axelrod, who later oh. became president Obama's um, yeah. you know, chief counselor. On the other side of me was the religion writer who was a ball guy in the movie, if you remember. And um, so I'd written my first book, the case for, or, or the um, uh, Ford Pinto, Pinto book yeah. called Reckless Homicide. And they delivered a box of books, the first box to the newspaper. And I remember it came to my cubicle and I, I could not open the box. This was such a fulfillment of a lifelong uh. dream I, I couldn't. And, and so Bruce, the religion writer came by. So well, what are you doing? And I said, my, my first book is in that box. I, I can't open it. He said, what do you mean you can't open it? I said, since I was in fourth grade, I wanted to write a book and I can't bring myself to open it. And he said, well, I'll open it. And he reached out and he tore it open and he pulled one out. In fact, I've got a copy. Oh, oh that's nice. Oh, yeah. Here it is. So, <laughs> oh. so um, I got to see it for the first time. So the funny thing is, years later, this is a few years ago, I was going to I was writing another book and I wanted to quote this old book in that new book. And I didn't have a copy anymore. I lost my copies. And so I went on Amazon and, and bought had, one. I bought one, but it was a used copy. It was two hundred and fifty dollars to buy my own book. And oh then I call my, I call my best friend up and I said, can you believe this? I just spent $250 to buy my own book. He said, Lee, I've got a copy. I would have ah, given you <laughs> I bought my first book and because I ran out, I went to Amazon and I got a used one and I already signed it to a young lady when she was in a youth group. I said, oh, no, no, this is fun. Now, now, after that, after that, yeah. did you have the feeling like I, I reached my peak with that or or my next book is going to be a bestseller? I, I didn't know. You know, I don't write to sell books. I write because these are books I feel I need to write. And I mm. pray that people read them. I mean, I, I hope they do, but but I don't write them anticipating them to be bestsellers. I write them because God's puts a topic on my heart or it's been an important issue in my life. And uh, if only one person reads it, that's the person God wanted to read it. So um, I don't write thinking it's going to be a bestseller. My publisher thinks that they're all going to be bestsellers. <laughs> and it's nice about uh, your books is you do research. You physically, like you go to UCLA, you yeah. go here, you go there, you do the research. Before yeah. I get to that, so you you had the book. You When did you start speaking publicly at churches and stuff like that? Oh, well... I left my job at the newspaper 
and took a 60% pay cut. Oh, and, yeah. And went to work at a church, um, lived in a tiny thousand square foot house for 20 years. Couldn't afford Was that. Eight. Willow Creek. You were yeah. At, yeah. Oh, and Chicago. Yeah. yeah. In, in Illinois. Yeah. In Illinois. Okay. And, and, um, I, I'll be honest. I felt that God had given me a gift as a communicator to speak. Mm -hmm. And, but I knew that there's a risk in that of, of self, um, promotion of, um, uh, and, and so I never said anything to anybody about it. Um, I, I thought if God wants me to preach, he will make it happen. And so I never said anything. Well, one day the senior pastor came in and said, the elders were praying and they believe that God may have given you a gift of preaching. And we would like to um, mentor you and prepare you and see if that might be true. So that was a fulfillment of what I had hoped would happen. And um, so I was mentored in, in theology by Mark Middleberg and, and preaching by some great preachers. But I was so nervous. I remember the first time, you know, most preachers get to start out in a church of 50 or 100. Right. I no, started yeah, out 10, in a church of 20,000. <laughs> so, so I remember, this is no kidding. First time I had to get up to speak. Um, my wife and I are sitting in the front row and there was a worship song. And after the worship song, we applauded. And when I applauded, my hands splashed. From the sweat. I, I was so nervous. My hands were so sweaty. Whoa. Nope, that's not an exaggeration. I was splashing as I was clapping. <laughs> I was so nervous. And I went up and, and my notes were in English, of course, but it was like they were in Farsi or something. I, it was like my eyes couldn't even read my notes. I was so nervous. Um, wow. Yeah, it was, it was really hard. But you know what? God showed up and... Um, uh, by God's grace, um, I got better. I couldn't have gotten much worse. I'll tell you that. You know, I had the pleasure of hearing you a few times in California. One time at the Anaheim Mayor's Breakfast, and oh yeah, really brought the house down. Then you came to our church, Crossroad Church in Corona, and you brought the house oh, down. Oh, that's such a now, great! I love that church. Yeah, give me some embarrassing moments either going towards an engagement a gig or during a gig or something that happened that really go oh i wish this never happened oh man I, you know my hand <laughs> splashing was an embarrassing thing right off the bat um golly what what embarrassing <laughs> tell me something awful about yourself <laughs> something, like you know i was talking about josh mcdowell was telling me he said one time he was speaking and he noticed his zipper was open Oh, so yeah. he turned around to fix it and it got stuck with his <laughs> shirt and it took him like 10 minutes to pull it up. And people are dying thinking he's doing it on purpose. Yeah. And he started doing it after that on purpose to do that. But some stuff like that, you know, you're well, missing a flood. I remember when I spoke at the I spoke to the entire staff of Zondervan Publishing House, my publisher. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I got up and um, uh, gave a talk and I thought it went pretty well. And then um, I left and I went to the airport and I went into the men's room. And when I went up to the urinal in the men's room, I realized my zipper had been down the whole time. <laughs> and <laughs> nobody ever said anything. But um, yeah, that was that was embarrassing. It, it's embarrassing when you think back, you know, or, or the time I remember when I um, I did a panel discussion. And at the end, I went into the washroom to uh, um, wash my hands. And I found I had a piece of uh, spinach, you know, that covered my front tooth. So it looked like a, I looked like a hillbilly up there uh, giving a talk. Now, uh, you wrote how many books, uh, Lee? Well, it's funny. I had to do a uh, curriculum vitae when I became a professor at uh, Houston Baptist University a few years ago. And so I had to list all my books. And I'd never done that. So I made a list of all. And it was over 40. Okay. And I said to my wife, no wonder I'm so tired. I have, I had no, I, I would always say I wrote more than 20 because I figured, yeah, it was more than 20. It's actually more than 40. Now, um, how long does it take you to write a book average? 
If it's a major book, like the case for grace, the case for miracles, as you say, I go out and I interview people. So it takes me probably 18 months, a year to two years, usually 18 months to produce a major book. So, um, but then a lot of my books are um, derivative of that. So for instance, the case for Easter, it shrinks down the evidence from the case for Christ on the resurrection. I added a new introduction, new conclusion, but it's, mm. it's essentially the same, you know, a part of the case for Christ. So, and some of my books, a lot of them are children's editions or oh. teenager editions where we kind of dumb it down a little bit for, for young people. <laughs> yeah. and, um, so, so some of them are derivative, but for a major book um, and that's, you know, I thank God for, he gave me this journalism training because I have an endless um, stream of books I can write because I'm not the expert. You know, I go and I find the expert. People think I'm smart. I'm not smart. I just find really smart people and I interview them. <laughs> yes, you are. I know. If you, if you say, have you, if you say, what situation does it happen? I hope it does happen to you because it happened to me when you said, Lord, can you give me two minutes of being non-Christian so I can do this? Mm. <laughs> you know, maybe beat that person up or, or respond. Yeah. In a... <laughs> well, that, that's kind of a definition of social media, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, I love social media. I, I love Twitter. Um, I interact with people a lot on Twitter. I'm at Lee Strobel if somebody wants to follow me. Yes, yes. And um I, I love doing that, but when I first started Twitter, I would get these hostile um uh, tweets from uh atheists and 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 I'm friends with a lot of atheists, but I'm talking about people who are more anti-theists who are very mm. angry toward Christians and they would they would write these horrible, horrible things and and so sometimes I just wish I could put my Christianity on the shelf for two hours and respond to all these people <laughs> and say, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah that, but I've, I've learned I just can't do that. In fact, I, I got a um, trying to think it, it was a, a tweet, as I recall, that was really, really hostile. And um, I was going to write a real angry tweet back, but I didn't. And um, I. I, I kind of wrote a nice tweet back to him, sincere, and, and just said, I'm sorry you feel that way. And so anyway, we started direct communicating, and it turned out this guy was a professor at a secular university who had gone blind, and he'd lost his job, and he was living in a trailer, and his whole life was disintegrating, mm. and no wonder he was hurting. And I was so glad I didn't react in anger, but I could befriend him and um, reach out to him and be Jesus to him. Um, and that taught me a lesson that, you know what, don't put the Christianity on the shelf. Try to be Jesus, even to those people who are are um, more like the Roman soldiers and attacking. Yeah, that's a great advice. I had a, I had a comedian on the show and most uh, probably 99% of my guests are believers in Christ, but this guy was an atheist comedian, and I wanted to hear his opinion, and he shared it, and it's on YouTube already and on, on the Laughter for All podcast. But he said, when I told him, why are you an atheist? And he said, and I, I have to find the quote, he said, because there's no, uh, there's no such thing. Okay, I have to say, come on, please, you have to say uh, he, he said, there's no such thing as objective truth. So what I do, I therefore make use and give value to subjective truth and seeing pleasure in daily things and beauty in the people I meet because I know there's no eternity, eternal life. What do you well, say? Ironically, uh, <laughs> he's saying that subjective truth is objectively true. <laughs> In other <laughs> words, he, 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 that, it makes no sense. Um, we cannot live as if there is no objective truth. We, we just cannot live that. Now, we can say it, but we cannot consistently live our lives thinking the truth is subjective. Uh, you know, I can believe that um, 
that gravity is, is not true and that it's a subjective truth, but I don't believe it. But if I jump off a building, I'm going to be met with a harsh reality that uh, gravity is true. It is a law that is universal, whether I believe in it or not. And there are certain things that are true, whether I believe them or not. Um, and there are certain moral truths in our world. It is, uh, it is objectively wrong to torture a baby for fun. Mm -hmm. That is objectively wrong. And anybody who says it isn't um, it ought to be probably watched by psychiatrists. Right. <laughs> um, so to say that there is no objective truth is to make an objective truth statement. You're saying universally <laughs> there is no objective truth. The objective truth is there is no objective truth. It just it's a it's a what 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 philosophers call a self-stultifying or self-refuting claim. So um, I would say that there are things that are universally true, whether we believe them or not. And consequently, our quest as human beings ought to be to discover what that truth is so that we can align our lives with that truth. Because why would you not want to align your life with something that's... that's uh... Are we on overtime now? No, no, no. That's... <laughs> <laughs> why would we want to align our lives with something that's not true? So... Um, I, you know, just the mere statement that there is no objective truth is an objective true statement, and therefore it's objectively wrong. <laughs> so let's say I'm an atheist and I come to you. I said, "No, Lee, there's no God. There's no. Yeah. This is oh, you guys. This is just to make yourself feel comfortable. It's, there's no such thing. I know. Yeah. What do you What do you say to that person? Well, I would say um, the idea that there's a God that you believe in just to make you comfortable, I would say is refuted by the fact that the God of the Bible is not the God I would make up if I wanted to be comfortable. If, wow. I, if I was going to invent a God, he would say, hey, guess what? Do whatever the heck you want. Doesn't right. matter. You know, that's the kind of God I'd invent. But that's not the God I find. Uh, so the idea that God is merely an invention to, that we create to make ourselves feel better doesn't make sense. The sec secondly, I'd say, I hear atheists say this all the time on Twitter. They'll say, there is no evidence for God. And I'll say, you know, that is just an objectively um, incorrect statement. You can say, I don't buy the evidence, or you can say, I don't think there's enough evidence. But to say there's no evidence is just not true. I look at the evidence of cosmology, which is the origin of the universe. Um, whatever begins to exist has a cause. We know every scientist believes the universe had a beginning, and therefore there must be a cause behind the, behind the universe. What kind of a cause can bring a universe into existence? Must be eternal because it existed before physical time. Must be immaterial or spirit because it existed before the physical world. Must be uh, smart, given the precision of the creation event, must be powerful, given the power of the creation event, must be personal, because he had to make the decision to create. Um, Hockham's razor says there would just be one creator. So that's a description of the God of the Bible. Uh, secondly, the fine tuning of the universe. Scientists now know from the last 60 years of research, the universe, the numbers that govern the operation of the universe exist on a razor's edge so that intelligent life can exist. Change them imperceptively and life cannot exist. So um, where does that come from? Is that that defies the explanation? It's merely chance. The DNA in your cells, you have 100 trillion cells in your body. Open up any cell and take out the DNA and unwind it and it would be six feet tall. Embedded in that DNA is a four-letter chemical alphabet spelling out the precise assembly instructions of every protein out of which you are made. Where does that come from? Nature cannot produce information. It can produce patterns. If I walk down the beach and I see ripples in the, in the um, wet sand, I would say the, the waves naturally made those ripples. Nature can produce patterns. But if I walk down the beach and in the sand, I see John loves Mary and a heart around it and an arrow through it, I wouldn't say the waves created that. Why? Whenever we see information, whether it's a computer code, a newspaper, a painting on a cave wall, always there's an intelligence behind it. And, you know, it's as if God personally signed every cell in our body.
Uh, so those are three areas that tell me that God exists. And then I look at history. Um, you know, did Jesus exist? No question about it. Was he dead? Even the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is a peer-reviewed scientific medical journal, um, did an investigation into the evidence for the death of Jesus and said, quote, clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. So was he dead? Absolutely. We've got five ancient sources outside the Bible confirming he was dead. Was he reliably encountered after his death? Was he resurrected? We've got nine ancient sources, um, two of them outside the Bible, that confirm and corroborate the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. That is an avalanche of historical data. And so Jesus not only claimed to be the son of God, he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. That in a nutshell is the kind of evidence that convinced me as a skeptic that Christianity is not a fairy tale. It's not mythology. It's not make-believe. It is based on a solid foundation of truth. Amen. How many times a year do you speak in, on average? Well, not, not too many in 2020. <laughs> of course. None of us did. Right? Yeah. But on an average year, I don't know, maybe... I mean, number of times I actually speak, probably a hundred. So uh, you're traveling like. But us, then, but uh, then, um, at one event I may speak three or four times at. So right. that's not number of events. I say number of events a month, maybe uh, three or four. Now, how do you keep yourself from falling? You know, there's a great people, great. You know, yeah. I won't mention names, but yeah. you know, being at your caliber, being at your popularity, being who you are, I've seen lines of people wanting your autograph and signing your, you know, sign your book. How do you keep yourself protected? Well, first of all, I almost always travel with my wife. Um, mm. You know, our kids are married and and have kids themselves, so we're empty nesters. So she travels with me. Most of the time I pay for that myself um, right. um, just because I want her with me. Uh, second of all, I have in my life a man named Mark Middleberg, who has been my closest friend for what almost my entire Christian life. And Mark, um, um, we, there's not a day that goes by that we don't talk at least two or three times a day. We co-author books together. We are best friends. His kids call me Uncle Lee. And um, he has carte blanche to ask me any question at any time about any aspect of my life. Um, and same with him and me. So we hold each other accountable. We test each other. We, we encourage each other. And that is so important. I just, just last night, Naz, I got an email. Mm -hmm. And in the email, the, the subject matter says, said, I love you, Lee. And the email was from Rick Warren who um, I used to be a teaching pastor with Rick Warren. Right, I remember church. that. That's yeah. back. And so he wrote me a note and he said, Lee, I'm heartbroken by the news of so many Christian leaders who've fallen. He said, I just want you to know that if, if you're ever tempted by anything, uh, call me. We'll talk in confidentiality. I'll talk you off the ledge. And would you please do the same thing for me? Christian leaders need to do that kind of thing. I, I talked today, I did a Zoom event to a group of pastors in Kansas City. And I told them, you've got to each have an accountability partner. It's tough for pastors because yeah. they don't feel like they can just go to someone in their congregation. Uh, and I understand that. But you need to have someone of a, who's a peer, who can challenge you, who can uh, ask the right questions, who uh, where nothing is off, out of bounds, um, because we are under attack. Christian leaders yeah. are under attack and we need to be um, absolutely uh, scrupulous in what we do. That's amazing. You know, I heard this from an Egyptian speaker, Pastor. He said, just because the Titanic didn't make it across the Atlantic, there's still so many ships every day make it across. It is safe. You yes. can still cross that thing. So uh, I have a question. I have a show. By the way, that's a, that's a great illustration. I'm it gonna, is. I'm going to use that one. Thank you. you. you, you this <laughs> right by uh, Dr. Maher Samuel, who, who was one of uh, Ravi Zacharias, you know, uh, uh -huh. apologetics. And yeah. he was heartbroken because of that. 
Yes. This is an amazing illustration. Let me ask you, I do a show every weeknight called uh, Live with Naz, where we laugh for an hour from 7.30 to 8.30 Pacific time. But one of the fans on this show, she knew you're going to be here. She had a question for you, and yes. I'm going to read it to you. It's very uh, she said, okay, this is the second. There's two questions uh, from two different people. But her question was, uh, okay, well, uh, uh, where is it? Okay, this. Uh, you know what? I'm going to ask you the second question from an, okay. a gentleman from the same show. He said, Lee Strobel, my dad passed away two years ago. How do I find peace in Jesus when I'm uncertain whether he gave his life to Christ or not? While he was yeah. here, I let my dad know the love that Christ had for him. However, I don't know if he ever asked God to come into his life. It hurts me that I don't know for sure. How? Yeah. So what do you say to him? That's a great question. My own brother was a lifelong atheist oh. and he died of COVID um, uh, last spring. Um, I don't know if he ever came to faith either. Uh, I shared with him as best I could when I could. Uh, he definitely had heard the gospel, um, but I don't know. And just as this gentleman doesn't know about his father. And I'll say a couple of things. Um, we just don't know when a person is on the verge, on the precipice of dying. Um, we don't know how many of them reach out to God in that moment. Mm -hmm. And and God hears them. And And if they reach out and call out for uh, God to save them at the last moment, you know, God will respond to that prayer. So I think we have to, we, we have to hope and trust that they took that step. My, my brother knew he was dying of COVID for a period of time before he died. I, I, I just hope that he reached out to Christ for redemption in that moment. Um, um, and I think what this does, it just, it, it doubles, it should redouble our desire to tell other people the message of hope and grace through Christ. And, and I hope it increases our um, um, willingness to step out of our comfort zone and to share Jesus with those people we encounter. So we don't know, but, you know, in the microseconds before a person dies, um, you know, I think of my father-in-law, he was an atheist and um, he was dying. And um, I sat down with him and I pleaded with him and I shared the gospel one more time with him. And I, after, it took 45 minutes. And ultimately, I said, you want to receive Jesus right now, don't you? And with tears running down his cheek, he said, yes, I do. And at age 87, after being an atheist his whole life, he prayed to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And then two hours later, he had another stroke. And that stroke destroyed his mind, and he ended up dying. So in the last cogent conversation of his life, he received this free gift of God's grace, and therefore I will spend eternity with him in heaven. Um, so we have that hope that, that, that they would reach out at that last moment and take that step. But um, we're, we won't know until heaven. Amen. And that question that came from the Canadian young lady, she said, question, uh, if you're taking it for the podcast, Elvira. Who is Jesus? Is the Jesus we worship today with lights, showmanship, churches trying to have the biggest congregation, the same Jesus that was worshipped before technology and power were even invented? Or have we lost sight of who he is? And if we have, how do we get back to worshipping him? Yeah, he is the same Jesus. The question is, um, are we envisioning him and understanding him? Uh, as he uh, presented himself in the pages of scripture. Um, you know, one thing that happens sometimes is when God gifts someone as a preacher and his church grows, um, um, sometimes people begin to rely on their own showmanship and on their own uh, skills uh, to as communicators and, and uh, don't rely on the Holy Spirit and on the word of God. And um, as a result, we do see churches that um, have gone off into doctrinal shortcuts and, and um, um, things that are not reflective of scripture. And it's sad and it's frustrating. Um, uh, but a church doesn't have to be small to be a good church. 
Um, you know, there are many, you know, it's, I don't think size is the issue. Um, there's, there are some incredibly large churches in America that are led by godly people that are doctrinally um, um, right on the beam and, uh, and who worship Jesus for who he is. Um, we have to be discerning. We have to do what the Bible says and test everything according to scripture. And when we find a church that has gone astray, um, that's not a church we ought to be part of. So, um, you know, I, I think sometimes we need to get back to fundamentals. Uh, yeah. You know, who is Jesus? What is his message? How would Jesus feel about um, ways a certain pastors live? Um, you know, these are things we have to wrestle with. And, uh, you know, godly people wrestle with those things. Yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we sin. Um, I've certainly not been perfect, but, um, we have to, we have to use that, um, standard of scripture and measure everything that we are and everything that we do against that standard. Well, speaking of churches, I, I accepted Christ in 1992 at a Southern Baptist church where they had uh, a room for the nursing mom and a room for the Pentecostal members. And they were very fundamental. And then I went to Calvary Chapel under the teaching of Chuck Smith. Yeah. But I was doing my Bible study with brethren, brothers. <laughs> and if you mention the word miracle in our time, they would go crazy. So you wrote the book now, or you're writing the book, The Case yeah. for Miracles. Yeah. What do you, do you believe there's miracles today? I do. Um I do. And most Christians do. Um, there are some what are called cessationists, and there's two kinds of cessationists. Some of them don't believe that the gift of healing is uh, still active today. And some don't believe, but they believe that um, some people are healed today and there are miracles. Some don't believe that any miracles take place uh, anymore. You know what? I spent two years investigating miracles and I document in my book cases that there is no explanation other than God supernaturally intervening. I mean, and these are, these are things that are published in secular scientific peer reviewed medical journals. And this is not stuff that, that uh, you hear on a street corner. Uh, this is stuff that is documented. Um, in fact, since my book Case for Miracles come out, there have been two more cases that have been published in peer-reviewed medical journals, case studies, one of a woman um, who had been um, blinded for, I'm, I'm doing this from memory, but I think it was for 12 years. Um, she went to a school for the, uh, uh, the blind. She read Braille. She walked with a white cane. She married a man who was a um, um, pastor. And one night he prayed for her and said, God, you can heal her right now. I know you can. I pray that you do. She opened her eyes and had perfect eyesight. Um, and, wow. and this has been a number of years and her eyesight has remained perfect. Um, and this is published in a, in a peer reviewed medical journal um, as a case study. What do you do with that? What, what is it just happenstance that this, um, juvenile macular degeneration, which is an incurable condition, happens to be instantaneously healed at the moment of prayer in the name of Jesus? Okay, maybe. But I don't think so. Or what about Mozambique? Here's an interesting story. There was an outbreak of the miraculous in Mozambique. And so a professor at a secular university, Indiana University, with a PhD from Harvard, said, I'm going to investigate. So she sent a team of investigators to Mozambique. They went into the remote villages and they said, bring us all your deaf and your blind. So they brought all the people deaf, blind or with severe hearing or vision loss. Immediately, they were tested scientifically. What is their exact level of hearing? What is their exact level of vision? They tested that scientifically. Then immediately, they were prayed for healing in the name of Jesus Christ. And then immediately after that, they were tested scientifically again. Was there any change? Is there any difference? And guess what they found? In virtually every case, there was some improvement. In fact, the average um, improvement in terms of vision was a tenfold improvement. There were people healed of healing issues. There was a woman named Martine, when they met her and tested her, could not hear a jackhammer next to her. And after prayer in the name of Jesus, she can now hear normal conversations. 
Well, this team was so amazed. They said, we need to see if we can replicate this. So they went to Brazil, which is another place where miracles have clustered because miracles don't happen by happenstance. They tend to cluster in certain places. And so they went to Brazil where another cluster was happening. They replicated the study and got the same results. So I interviewed this woman who is a PhD from Harvard. I said, what do you make of this? And she said, Lee, something is going on. She said, this is not emotionalism. This is not um, placebo effect. This is not fakery. It's not fraud. Something is going on. Now, she couldn't say it was miraculous, but I want to tell you what, I think it was miraculous. And so I document a lot of this kind of stuff in my book. And frankly, I just think that the evidence is overwhelming that uh, God is still in the miracle business today. In fact, um, I want to encourage your listeners. If you would like to witness a miracle and be able for the rest of your life, say, I witnessed a miracle, go to the website, newvoice, nuvoice.org, nuvoice.org, and you will hear an actual case of a man, uh, Dwayne Miller, who is a preacher, whose voice was paralyzed by a, by a virus. His vocal cords were paralyzed. He was examined over three years by 63 voice experts, including a Swiss symposium of voice experts who all concluded there was no hope that he would ever get his voice back. He talked like this. That's all he could say. His church invited him back to speak to a Sunday school class on the topic of God's ability to heal from one of the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 103. They tape recorded that class. And if you go to that website, you can listen to the recording where he's talking about the healing power of God. And in the midst of that, God restored his voice. Newvoice.org. Nuvoice.org. And, you know, this has been written. There have been two books published about this. He is now a pastor again. He actually has a radio show in Dallas to use his voice to tell people about God. But if you go to that website, you can actually hear, and you can hear people in the back. His wife breaks into tears. You can hear people reacting in the background because they knew him. And you can listen to his voice get better and better. And now his voice is perfectly healed against all odds while he was in the midst of preaching on the healing power of God. So if you listen to that, you can say in terms of audio, I've been a witness to a miracle of God. Do you think miracles happen more overseas and like the, the same with demonic activities? Like when I travel overseas, like Haiti or other or Egypt or something, you can feel the demonic activities more than here. Do you see, do you think miracles happen more overseas than here? Yeah, I do think they cluster. Um, I think they tend to cluster in places where the gospel is breaking in uh, for the first time. One expert told me that up to 90% of the growth of the church in China can be attributed to people who themselves or they know someone who has been healed. So um, it tends, uh, miracles tend to cluster in places like Mozambique, like Brazil, where the gospel is just breaking in. And part of the reason I think is because Many of these are preliterate cultures. They can't read scripture anyway. And um, they they tend to be people who respond to uh, miracles because they tend to be superstitious, perhaps, in their beliefs. And um, these miracles point them toward the real God. Um, So I I think that is true. I think they do tend to cluster overseas. Now, when I was a cynic, when I was an atheist, I used to say, oh, I get it. They happen in places where you can't test them. Ah, but look what happened to the team from Indiana University that went to um, Mozambique and tested it and found that it is something supernatural has taken place. Now, we, you know, one of the stories I think is about this uh, orphan named Ruth that prayed for a water, uh, he, you know, a, a water bottle. Yes. Uh, water bottle. But tell us, you know, there's a lot of comedians and speakers and pastors watching and listening. You have a way of telling a story. There's a secret to it. You tell a story. You t- you're very compelling. Like you start your preaching and you're done. And like, you didn't lose us. You keep us entertained. Huh. Oh, Not entertained, but then what, 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 what? Do you have a secret for how you tell a story or what? You know, I'm not formally trained in speaking. So it, it, I think it's a gift. And I think my years as a journalist helped me to tell a story. Um mm. 
You know, I regret the life I lived before I was a Christian as a journalist. I was a drunken, narcissistic, um, um, angry, bitter, um, duplicitous individual. I'm not proud of my life before I was a Christian, but God redeemed the training I received as a journalist and the training in law. And now has caused good to come out of that by using it to spread the gospel and to uh, interview scholars and experts about the evidence for the faith. So um, I think part of it comes from that training as a journalist. I think part of it is, part of it is I just get so enthusiastic because this is, this is true. This is real. This will transform your life. This will rewrite your eternity. I mean, this is the most important thing on the face of planet earth. And I just find it hard not to get excited about it. Amen. I can go another 10 hours with you. And I know <laughs> I appreciate your time. I just in the closing two minutes, you, you had a sermon called trusting God in worrisome time. Yeah. And now uh, this is worrisome time with COVID and everything. Uh, for people who are watching and listening, can you encourage them a little bit in the last couple of minutes here? Yeah, you know, the verse that comes to my mind are, are the words of Jesus uh, when he said, um, I, I tell you those things, these, I tell you these things so that in me you may find peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And what I love about that verse is first, Jesus is honest. You know, there are spiritual leaders, especially in the Far East, who will tell you that uh, suffering is Maya. It's an illusion. It's not real. Baloney. Baloney. My brother died of COVID. This is not an illusion. This is real. Suffering is real. And Jesus was honest enough to tell us the truth. We live in a fallen world. And he said, because you live in a fallen world, you will have trouble. You're going to have tribulations. You're going to have strife. You're going to have illness. Um, that's the world in which our sin has opened the door to. But he says, in the midst of that, in the midst of COVID, I can give you the two very things you need the most. I can give you peace for the present, and I can give you courage for the future. Those are the things we need the most. And Jesus, in that one verse, says, I give you peace for the present, give you courage for the future. That's what I need that's probably what all of us need. We need a little peace in the midst of the turmoil of the world today. Uh, but we need courage to look ahead and, and, and to say, you know what, there is a better time to come. And that with God's help, we'll get through this. And with God's help, as we follow him, the door will be open to an eternity of, of joy and wonder and excitement and adventure and healing that, that as the Bible says, no eye has seen and no ear has been able to ever yet hear. That's the hope that we have. Amen. I, you know, I had a question I forgot to ask, but yeah. really I have to ask it. It's like, why is the actor who played your role in the movie had a mustache? I mean, yeah. it's like, it's just, you know, it, it's, he's a great guy, Mike Vogel. The funny thing is he had lost his faith in high school and he read my book, Case for Christ, and came back to faith. Hey, and then man. years later, here he is playing me in the movie. Well, the funny thing was he had just cut his hair real short. And the movie is set in the year 1980. And so they had to get a wig. So that's a wig he's wearing. Oh. And he said, I hate this thing. <laughs> he said, this is like having a squirrel on my head. I hate this wig. That's but he, he grew a mustache because he said it was more 1980s. You know, I, he wanted to look very 80s. I didn't have a mustache right. in the 80s. Right. But um, so he was trying to fit into the 1980s vibe. Um, he's a great guy, by the way. The, the ironic thing is he's an avid outdoorsman and I'm an avid indoorsman. So that's like the big me. difference. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, how can people get a? I know sometimes you go to Amazon and the author doesn't make a lot of money off their book. Is there a way people can go directly to you and get your book? No, you know, I just say go anywhere. Go to Amazon. Um, if you go to a used book place, I don't get anything, but I don't care. Just read the book. It doesn't matter to me. Um, awesome. So you can get it anywhere. Um, my website is leestrobel.com. If, if, if I would say, you know, if people are interested in the courses that we have available, they're all online. They're all, you can get a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, or just take a couple of courses on the resurrection or Islam or whatever. If you go to Strobel Center, all one word, .com, 
you get the information on our, our and center. you can have a degree you can study and get a degree in that. yeah you can get a degree an undergraduate degree or a master's degree um at the yeah. Strobel I, I, just center. Had, I just had lunch with a guy who's getting a master's degree through our program strobelcenter.com yes it's all through colorado christian it's all accredited and it's designed for people that are living busy lives uh who have a full-time job so it's all zoom and um it's the courses last five weeks and uh so it's all takes into account the fact we're all busy but uh you can get a master's degree or some people say golly i don't know another degree i just want to take a course on um the resurrection and so I got together 41 PhDs from around the country who are experts in this, these areas. And, and we built these courses together. And uh, so I, I'm thrilled with the opportunity that people have to be able to learn and grow and get better at this stuff. You're amazing. And I know 200 years from now, of Jesus, Jerry, your books will still be used and people. Thank you so much. You're so generous. Oh, Naz, you're, I love you, man. You are so uh, awesome. You, you make me smile. You encourage me. I love your depth. I love your humor. Um, and um, I think sometimes the deepest people in the room are the funniest people. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm honored. Love you. Thank you for your time. I, hopefully we will work together soon in Colorado or in Dallas, yes. anywhere. Absolutely. Okay. Well, God bless you. Thank you. God for bless you. And if you want to share this with your friends, it's under Comedian Nazareth on Facebook. You can just share it. Thank you so much.